It's usually translated as absorption. Just the mind getting absorbed in a concentrated state. It's a, it's a very good question because uh, it's a common experience. It's quite a mystery how it works. I have no idea why it does. Why don't you try? <laughs> I mean, one thing is with these resolutions, they do only work when the supportive conditions are there. So if the preparation has not been done, you could make the resolution and nothing would happen. You know, so it's not, it's not completely disconnected from what you've been doing and the the preparation of the mind. You know, there are five, as you probably know by now, there are five jhanic factors for the first jhana, and they're just different uh, initial, initial application, which is the connection, sustained application, rapture, happiness, one-pointedness. And when there's, uh, they've been strengthened and are in balance, then the resolution will have effect. But why it is that just by making a resolve in the mind and then something happens is quite amazing. So just enjoy the mystery of it. This is an image that's arising. Yes, <laughs> 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 I'm not really dangerous. <laughs> um, but there's no emotion with it. I actually feel the strike and impact goes through my body. So I feel that hmm. and I see it happening, but there's no emotion. And I'm wondering, is this like a, a release of past life? Because it doesn't seem to be related to anything. Hmm. Is it like a... Hmm. The question was about was very quick images happening both in the sitting and outside of the sitting of 
being with a person and then seeing herself kind of striking them down with a sword. Yeah, sword. <laughs> and the question is, where do these images come from? Are they from some past life? Or it's really difficult to say where they're coming from. Perhaps, or perhaps it's the uh, some constellation of images from all the movies we've seen and all the books we've read and you know the mind just storehouses uh, all of these impressions and it's uh, not dissimilar in a way uh, from dream images you know when you're when you're sleeping at night and all strange combinations uh, arise in the mind uh, i think it's not so important to know where they're coming from uh, as is how you're relating to them, whether in the moment you're seeing it as simply an image, you know, arising in the same way that a sound arises. So you're just sitting and the image arises, being known, noticing the impermanence, the insubstantiality, uh, or whether there's some kind of hook in it, you know, whether there's some kind of reaction or identification or pushing away. I think it's more concerned when it happens outside cities it's like, you know, you expect anything to happen in the city, but outside a city, it's, you know, it's a little bit more disturbing. Right. Um, really, the, the direction the practice is going is really to have less and less of a distinction between sitting and non-sitting. Because it's the same mind at work. It's not that our mind suddenly changes when we stop sitting. You know, it's just throughout the day, moment after moment, something is being known. Sight, sound, breath, sensation, image, emotion. And that's happening in the sitting, in the walking, in everything. So actually I think it's a good sign, you know, that uh, you're beginning to see less distinction in your experience. And again, the important thing is how you're relating to it, not, not what it is that's arising. And sometimes very weird things arise, but it's all like a movie. The only power that things have are the power that we give them through identification, through reaction, you know, in and of themselves, everything, whether thoughts or images or feelings or sensations, in and of themselves, they're simply empty, insubstantial phenomena. You know, appearing and disappearing. There's not much substance there. But we invest a lot. Or there's a strong habit, habituated conditioning, to invest a reality in what's arising. You know, and the mechanism of that is through reaction, through identification, through judgment. Okay, the question was about the talk I gave the other night and whether in the Mahasi model, which is also found in the Visuddhimagga and the suttas, 
uh, of whether freedom is dependent upon that experience of cessation. Is that what you were asking? Is that a necessary prerequisite to Right. In that way of understanding, you know, the development of the practice, it's those moments of path and fruition consciousness which are taking Nibbana as the object right? and is experienced as a cessation of the flow of conditioned phenomena. That first moment, that path moment, has the power to uproot the various galaises or the defilements. So you could think of freedom in from two aspects. One, the freedom of that in that state itself of cessation, but also you could think of it as the freedom of mind being free of defilements, which comes as the result of that. I guess what mm -hmm. the question was that generally it's as it's the culmination of the path in that system, it's quite a refined state and usually an experience in intensive practice. So it's like almost a precondition almost is a period of intensive practice. Not necessarily. Right. The comment was that in that system, because this is such a refined state that it usually usually happens in periods of intensive practice and so common was in some way intensive practice becomes a prerequisite you know for that which is often true although not necessarily like with the question on the jhanic reg solutions it's all a question of conditions coming together you know, and it's like we do the work and then it's surrender because it never, nothing happens as you know, I hope by now, <laughs> by expectation. You know, exp expectation just gets in the way and it's really this, this question of understanding that the practice is one of non-attachment to anything. And we practice that and the conditions are created for whatever's going to happen to happen. And then it can be at any time, although intensive practice seems to be a good idea. <laughs> you know, be, mostly because uh, just the conditions support the mind of no attachment. One of the, I've mentioned this before I think, but one of the biggest helps to me with respect to these different systems and ways of explanation and models of development uh, is taking refuge in don't know mind. My great mantra is who knows. <laughs> you know, there are just so many angles on things and you practice in one way, it develops or unfolds in a particular way. Practice with a slightly different perspective or angle, it unfolds you know, in a slightly different way. But it's all about, in all of the traditions, in all of the practices, it's always about the diminishing and eradication of greed, hatred, delusion. You know, so it's very simple. Like if there's any confusion about the practice or 
or the model. It's very simple to come back to that basic. Okay, in any moment, is the mind full of greed or free of greed? You know, full of aversion or free of aversion? And that, it really simplifies things because it can get complex, you know, with all of uh, the different slants on things. Okay, last question. Um, I suppose it's because of the shortening of time, but in the last few days I find myself um, unable to stay quiet between cities. I'm still practicing, but my mind wants entertainment. I walk around and this place isn't enough. <laughs> I reach for books and then I say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to stay collected. I want to take a walk, wanting to be bigger than just being here. Any help? <laughs> I actually don't think it's wanting to be bigger. I think it's uh, wanting to become distracted. Um, and that's fed, and quite commonly, in the last days of retreat. And it's fed primarily because uh, we may start missing the trigger points for future rising. You know, you're just, you're just going along and then almost subliminally, you know, there'll be a thought, ah, oh, only a few days left. What am I going to do when I leave? And just the mind starts creating a future scenario. And to the extent that we get caught in it, it can create a kind of restlessness, which then uh, seeks to act out in various ways. Uh, my experience from the end of going through this you know, period of end of retreats many, many times is that it actually is It's much more painful and difficult to get into a kind of practice mode, kind of half practicing, half not in anticipation of the end. That's a much more difficult space to be in than actually arousing the diligence and the vigilance to stay right there until the end. Uh, because that kind of restlessness in the mind is, is an unpleasant, difficult uh, space. What it takes is being very careful for that trigger point, you know, because they come so quickly. Um, and so I would just use these last few days to watch how the mind, how we create mind worlds of future through our thoughts, through not uh, being aware of those thoughts arising. Because not only will it help you really stay balanced and concentrated and at ease you know, in these last days, but it's tremendously uh, valuable in seeing how we do that very same process in our lives. You know, it's, so it's very revealing 
because these kinds of thoughts are coming up and they're coming up quite naturally. So it's not a question of them not coming. You know, it's natural to start anticipating or thinking about what's going to happen when you break silence or leave the retreat. But the challenge is to see that just as a thought in the moment rather than to be investing a reality in it and then living in that little mind world with all the emotional consequences. Do you follow? So it's an extremely uh, illuminating time if you stay quite alert to the arising of these kinds of thoughts and images and to see them for exactly what they are, just a thought. Now, if you see it as that, the thought arises and it's gone, and you're still right here, as mindful and concentrated as, and as into the retreat as you might have been right in the middle. You're not, you're not pulled out at all. But this is a real challenge in these last days. I would, I'd urge you to look at this because it is very revealing about how our mind works and about how we live our lives. So have fun. (laughs) Any questions? I really don't know. No. The question was about the relationship of practice of mindfulness to the onset of Alzheimer's disease. Um, I can just share with you one little anecdote uh, because I don't have a lot of experience with it so I don't know. Uh, but we were teaching one retreat um, in Colorado and there was a woman who was in the very beginning stages of it and so she would uh, sometimes just not remember you know where she had put her shoes or and my first we were talking about it and my first uh, response was just to encourage sort of a more careful mindfulness you know in those activities but that didn't really seem to kind of hit the mark and then somebody came up to me afterwards who had been working with Alzheimer's uh, patients and they said something which made quite a bit of sense to me that it's it wasn't so much being mindful, trying to be mindful in the moment because that is simply forgotten in the disease but 
to get okay in the mind with having forgotten. You know, because she was getting very upset that she had forgotten. And that was the piece, you know, where the meditation was really a very big help. That, okay, if the forgetting was there, that's okay. And if you need to ask help because of that, that's okay. And the easing of the mind in that respect. Uh, what the long-term effect of the practice is on the onset or not of it, I, I don't think really anybody knows at this point. I don't, anyway. question about the phrase, the Dharma is beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. Uh, just as a side comment to that, it, it's interesting in the different translations, sometimes it's translated as beautiful, sometimes translated as excellent, sometimes translated as noble, sometimes translated as pure. Uh, so we want to keep you know, that whole range of meaning. In the Satipatthana Sutta, there's one very controversial phrase. It's sometimes translated as, uh, there is, or this is the only way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, namely the four foundation of mindfulness. In, in Pali, the phrase, ekayana maga, which means sometimes translated as the only way, sometimes translated as one, the one way. But people often have difficulty with that translation. And another one that's been suggested from the Pali, which is ambiguous you know, in the Pali, is a way that only goes in one direction. You know, and this, I think that in some way relates to your comment that the path of mindfulness, the path of the Dharma, only goes in the direction of purification, in the direction of the alleviation of suffering. So in that sense, whether at the beginning of the path, or the middle of the path, or the end of the path, it's in the direction of awakening, in the direction of purity. Uh, some rather uh, what's the word an analogy which really doesn't do this justice at all but it's just coming to mind uh, is with skiing it's fun in the beginning fun in the middle and fun at the end <laughs> you know no matter what level you're at from the first time of just being out on the mountain, even as you're falling all over yourself, it's fun.
So even as you're falling all over yourself in the practice, <laughs> and all the way through becoming an adept. You know, there's the great, the great joy of uh, the truth of it. Okay, the, the question was about intention in the mind and the, the understanding here that behind every action there's an intention and yet in the book, the Zen and the Art of Archery, the culmination of that discipline is to learn to shoot the arrow without intention. And so, what's going on? I think there's just a little confusion around the word intention because in the, di in the discipline, as I understand it, from the book of you know, the Zen and the Art of Archery, it's not so much, it's intention in the meaning of discursive thought. So it's being able to shoot without thought about it. The body doesn't do any, the body doesn't move if there's no intention. Corpses don't shoot arrows. You know, there's some mechanism whereby the arm is pulled back and it's released. But that's the intention in this respect is not discursive. It's not thought and it can be completely spontaneous. And I think that's what it's getting at. You know, to free the mind of thought about it. All the kinds of uh, reflective thought, which we know so well about uh, judgment, good and bad, will I hit the target, all of that. You know, and so there can be intention, just, just that mechanism in the mind, which uh, you could say triggers the action. But that's, that's very spontaneous and in the moment. Good sitting. As the retreat progressed, in many ways, the least important thing in what was happening in my experience was that sort of, you know, I was with the breath and then I wasn't with the breath. All kinds of other things were happening, and I found it very difficult to report them 
hmm. in that straightforward and clear manner. Um, because they were confusing to me, they had a lot to do with rolling the poncho. The poncho was, I found, eventually leading me somewhere. It was a kind of purification. So there was a conflict within me throughout the whole retreat of how to learn to court this mm-hmm. conflict. Mm-hmm. The question was about the reporting form and finding that many of the things that were happening in the practice uh, didn't seem to be easily expressed in the very disciplined reporting form that Upandita, for example, that that model. Uh, There are two aspects here. One is to realize that that is just one model of reporting and even within the Mahasi tradition, really Upandita is the only one who has fashioned that way. So there are many ways of reporting the experience, some uh, a little less formal, you know, where there's just a general accounting of what happens. So one is just to understand that and to work with whichever teacher you're working with to find the way that's most appropriate. There's also the possibility of learning how to use that form, if it feels like that's the appropriate way, to actually express everything that's happening. You know, but that takes some training in it, because it's not, it's not in any way limiting the experience. It's just framing whatever experience happens in a particular way. And so, for example, if there's a lot of thought about something, that could be reported. There was a run of papancha, a run of thought. I noted it as such, or I didn't note it. It continued, it disappeared. I came back to whatever. So you're, you're including, like that, that could be with emotion, with anything, with, with any kind of mind state. It's really just a report on whether or not we're mindful of it when it arises, whether we note it, noticing what happens to it. Uh, But as I said, this particular way of reporting is not necessarily for everyone. So, it doesn't have to be a problem. If you did, if you do kind of intuitively feel that it would be helpful though, it's capable of being practiced. You know, and it takes some time to really learn the, the skill of it. Do you have any uh, suggestions for kind of sharpening that? Come back next year. About five days ago, Steve mentioned that we were in the process of the slow death. The question was about how to be with uh, the crumbling aspect (laughs) of some mental factors, you know, as we reach the end of the retreat. 
This is actually a very important point and a very uh, critical time or, or useful time in the practice because it can highlight what we've been talking about you know, these last weeks that the practice is not about having certain experiences. It's about not clinging. And this is a very good example. If we're practicing to hold on to a certain state, like calm or stillness or quiet or depth or whatever, it's probably either becoming clear now or will become vividly clear tomorrow that these are conditioned states. They're arising out of certain conditions coming together and useful. A lot can be done in terms of insight in those states. But what we're practicing is not for the state itself. What we're practicing is for the mind not to cling. We can be mindful of anything. You know, we can be mindful of confusion, we can be mindful of the loss of concentration. I think I've mentioned earlier in the retreat, in the Satipatthana Sutta, a very interesting part on the fourth foundation of mindfulness, where it goes through, it lists, in that fourth foundation, mindfulness of mind objects. Sometimes it's translated as mindfulness of the Dhamma, which means, in this case, just the elements of mind and body. In one of the lists in that, you know, it goes through all the factors of enlightenment. We're mindful when concentration is present and when it's not present. We're mindful when rapture is present and when it's not present. So that's, I find that quite striking because the practice then is to notice equally when it's there and when it's not there. You know, and the purpose of the mindfulness is so that we don't cling, we don't get attached. Uh, There's so many aspects, you know, in this time now. One of the aspects of faith or confidence comes out of the understanding that everything is the Dharma unfolding. The Dharma in the sense of the elements of mind and body, nothing changes. You know, we go from this time of silence to time of talking tomorrow and interaction and different kinds of things will happen. But it's this very same process of nama rupa going on, of mind-body elements. When we see that or have that understanding, have confidence in that, it really can inspire our efforts to stay awake, to stay aware in whatever conditions are happening. And this is essential. You know, especially given the lives that most of us have chosen to lead, because we're not in monasteries, we haven't secluded ourselves from the world. You know, so we really need, this is the great challenge for us, that we need to see that the practice is seamless through any condition. This time now, this kind of transition time, you could see this next week as its own retreat, you know, offering really special opportunity to practice this. Uh, 
Got it. <laughs> and it's difficult. I mean, it's very difficult. That's, that's why you don't want to throw this time away, you know, or get lost in the papancha, in the story of the retreats of and, you know, and whatever that means for you. It's not helpful and not true. You know, you, you think it's really helpful to think of our life as a retreat, taking different forms. And this coming week is a very uh, powerful time to really watch how we do that and to practice it. Otherwise, things get very fragmented. You know, oh, this is my spiritual practice, this is my meditation, and everything else is not. I don't think that's a helpful way to, to understand what we're doing. And again, we'll, you know, tonight and in the next days, we'll be talking a lot of trying to encourage and remind you to keep this kind of awareness uh, during these times. It's difficult. Uh, so you really want to water this seed, you know, of understanding. <laughs> that being said, really just enjoy this last day of silence. The silence itself is a condition of great beauty. And you'll appreciate it a lot tomorrow. <laughs> so enjoy it today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.